Happy Mother's Day, moms. Uh, we love you. And I hope that you guys had a chance to like gather together. Like, okay, if you're here today and you couldn't be with your mom, like maybe your mom doesn't live in the area or or whatever, like find a family, okay, and say, hey, can I take a Mother's Day photo with you today? Okay, so like everybody's going to have a mom today. Like everybody gets one, okay? You get a mom. You get a mom. I feel like Oprah today. Um, we love we love uh, uh, Mother's Day and, and the privilege of being able to celebrate. I was telling um, the gals at Starbucks this morning, because I usually go there into the mornings to kind of look through the message, uh, that I, I feel bad for my own wife. She's a phenomenal, uh, like, like I, I would put her up against any other mom in, like, bare-knuckle fight or, like, changing diapers, either one. Like, she's, But uh, I told her, I said, it's not fair for her because she's married to a pastor, and Sundays are always Mother's Day, and... So I didn't get to get up and make breakfast for her in bed like she deserves. So I got like a whole week that I got to like try to make this up for her. But moms, we love you. And we're so glad that you're here uh, this morning. Um, it's 1986. Love the 80s. I'm 12 years old. And I'm just starting the seventh grade at Longfellow Middle School in Flint, Michigan. Now, the way that Longfellow had stuff set up. It was, it was a really big middle school. Uh, there were four different um, teams, they called them, okay? So you had Team A, Team B, Team C, and Team D. And that's kind of who you had classes with. It was kind of like a block of who you had classes with. Now, uh, I was on Team A. Uh, it was the gifted team, okay? I, to this day, cannot tell you how I ever wound up on the gifted team because I literally graduated high school with a 2.4 something GPA, okay, like I, I, like it must have been some sort of fluke, they got me mixed up with some other Scott who wound up in some other team, but I was on, now team A, we had classes on the third floor for our math and science, and then we had to walk down all three floors through the entire school, past the lunchrooms, into a back little section of the school where we had like our English and social studies, we were the only team that like had such a long distance to travel between classes. Uh, team B, they were like your normal cool kids. Team A was not known to be the cool kids, okay? Uh, team C was also kind of your normal cool kids, and then you had Team D. Uh, team D were the kids that were like, you know, uh, 17, 18 years old going into seventh grade for like eighth time. So, uh, that like, these dudes were like huge, okay? Now, when I, when I was in, uh, uh, middle school, just starting off at, at Longfellow Junior High, um, I, this, this is the trapper keeper that I really wanted to have. That one right there. It was sweetness, right? Uh, unfortunately, this was the trapper keeper that my mom bought for me, though. Not, not nearly, not nearly quite as cool. Uh, this was the hairstyle that I really hoped to have. Uh, this is the hairstyle that I actually had. That's me on the top left up there. So a kid that, that has a green horse trapper keeper and a bowl cut probably deserves to be beat up, but, um, I'm kidding, no one deserves, but I'm walking down the hall, uh, it's literally the first week of class. So I'm already a little bit nervous, that was, I think, me, uh, in seventh grade. I've got my trapper keeper under my arm, I'm walking down the hall, and I see these two dudes come walking towards me, and they're behemoth. I mean, like, we're talking massive, like, I'm, I, I swear, 6'2", 6'3", 220, like, they're shoulder to shoulder, and they're scraping the edges of the hallway. At least that's what it looked like to me. And I'm thinking to myself the whole time, like, 
Don't make eye contact. Don't make eye contact. Don't make eye contact. Don't make eye contact. I got my head down. I got my trapper keeper. I'm trying to pick up the pace a little bit as I'm getting close to them. I can hear their step. I look up as I'm getting close to them, and oh no, we made eye contact. And this is bad news. And and the kid literally looks at me, one of them, okay? He grunts something unintelligible to his friend, and then grabs me by my shoulders, literally picks me up off the ground, and sticks me against the locker. Like, this is no joke. My first week of middle, of middle school, seventh grader, and I got this kid who's literally got me about a foot or two off the ground, and we're like eye to eye now. And I don't know what to do. I'm literally just there with my trapper keeper, still stuck underneath my arm, just like this. The kid looked at me, giggled, and then set me down, and he and his friend just walked off. Okay? And uh, um, I went to the bathroom <laughs> to clean myself. And no, like, uh, I, I, in that moment, felt. Incredibly vulnerable. Have you ever felt vulnerable? Like been at a been at a time or place where maybe uh, um, you were uh, the minority, where you were the one who was the outcast, where you were the one that was different, where you were the one that was smaller, where you were the one that was a stranger, where you were the one that wasn't exactly sure how things were gonna go. Have you ever felt vulnerable? If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to open up to John chapter 19. We're going to be looking at three verses, and it's in a very interesting spot within the text. You see, in that moment, if you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. We've got some ushers that are, have Bibles. They can hand you one. In that moment, I, I was vulnerable. There wasn't a whole lot that I could do about it. Uh, but the truth was is that I wasn't vulnerable every single day. Uh, I had people that look out for me. Parents that cared about me, I had, I had friends. I was not vulnerable all the time. But, but there are literally people who wake up every single day and they wake up feeling that sense of vulnerability. Uh, people within our community that wake up every single day and they feel vulnerable. The text that we're looking at is, is really kind of an interesting text. We're only looking at a couple of verses. And it's a story that actually happens while Jesus is on the cross. Let's pick it up in verse 25 of chapter 19. It says, Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there, and the disciples whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Can you imagine what must have been going through Mary's mind? I mean, uh, you've literally been with your son from before he was born, the announcement to the angel. You raised him. You remember the times when you laughed together, uh, when he fell down and hurt himself, and when you had to hold him and console him because he was crying. You, you, you are remembering the time when you went to the temple and then accidentally left him behind and realized that he was back there and you went back and then you were shocked to find him actually teaching. 
people who are way older and more mature and supposedly more wise. You, you remember the time that you were at a wedding party together and they ran out of wine and you were like, we need some more wine. Jesus, we need to do something about this. And Jesus actually performs his very first miracle and turns water into wine. And, and you remember all of this. All the stuff that we've heard and, and so many other things that we don't know anything about but that Mary knew. And, and, and she's walked with Jesus through his entire public ministry believing the whole time. And now here she is after having watched her innocent son who's grown up to be a man that she is so unbelievably proud of that she follows that she believes in and she's just sat through one of the worst sections of time that anyone can possibly sit through. Her son being tortured, her son being mocked, all of his friends, the disciples, almost all of them, deserting him. And all these things, she's there left to walk. And Jesus is in the middle of all of this. I, I, I tried to, like, put myself in her mind a little bit this past week. Like, I was literally trying to think, like, what if it was one of my kids? And uh, I felt like I was starting to kind of get into that space a little bit. And I got this, like, shock of, like, electricity that kind of, kind of ran through my body and these kind of sickening feelings, uh, chemicals that I'm sure my brain released because I really tried to think about that, and I, I couldn't, like, I just couldn't think about it, and, and here she had to endure this whole time, and, and she's about to be all alone, okay, uh, we're not 100% sure, but uh, most scholars believe that um, Joseph, her husband, was considerably older than she was when they were married, and has died at some point between the time that Jesus was 12 and before he was 30, you don't know exactly when, uh, text doesn't tell us anything about that, but she's alone here. Uh, she was alone um, throughout all of Jesus' public ministry. So Jesus, as the oldest son, is one who's supposed to be taking care of her, because uh, a woman in ancient Israel, during this time, in the first century, uh, um, would have been basically very vulnerable in that society without someone to care for her. Joseph is gone, and now Jesus is dying. Uh, Jesus' half-brothers are nowhere to be seen. In fact, um, they seem to have deserted Mary as well because she's continued to follow Jesus and they have not, at least not yet at this point. Many of them do later on, but not now. And so here Jesus is literally being crucified. He's actually taking care of Mary's spiritual needs. Okay? And yet at the same time, in the midst of the agony, Jesus is paying attention to his vulnerable mother. And he says these words, Woman, here is your son. Now, woman, okay, we talked about this last week, there a couple weeks ago. But woman is not a disrespectful way, it's actually a very polite way uh, to interact uh, um, with a woman at this time. Uh, woman, here is your son. And she, the disciple, which is actually John, who wrote this gospel, here is your mother. See, what Jesus is doing is not just taking care of her spiritual needs by dying in the cross. He's also taking care of her physical by placing her in the care of John. Uh, history tells us that John wound up 
Jesus cares about our spiritual needs. We saw this last week when we looked at the story of the paralyzed man that gets lowered down to the roof, right? The very first thing that Jesus does is actually offers him forgiveness for his sins, which is way better than allowing him to walk again. But Jesus doesn't just care about our spiritual state. He cares about that most. He also cares about our physical state. And so Jesus winds up to prove to the Pharisees who don't think he has the power to forgive sins, he just the mat and go home. And the brother does. Stands up. Walks out. Everybody starts praising God. Well, Jesus is doing the same thing here. The very moment where he's actually literally saving his mother's cares about this for us as well. You ask, well, why? And what do we know that makes us believe that this is actually true? Well, take a look at this smattering of verses. Exodus 20, you shall not oppress the poor or vulnerable, God will hear their cry. Leviticus, the portion of the harvest is set aside for the poor and the stranger. Job, the Lord hears the cries of the poor and the vulnerable. Proverbs, speak out in defense of the poor. Isaiah, God is a refuge for the poor. Isaiah, again, true worship is to work with justice and care for the poor and the press. Matthew, what you do to the least among you, you do for Jesus. Luke, Jesus proclaims his mission to bring good news to the poor and the oppressed, which is actually quoting from another text in Isaiah. James, religion that God loves requires caring for orphans and widows. 1 John 3, 17-18. How does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's good and sees one in need and refuses to help? This is literally a, probably like less than 10% of the verses that deal with God's heart for the vulnerable. I, I mean, if I if I showed you all of them, it's like, like it's just a ton. It's all over the place. Why? Well, because God has always cared for the vulnerable. It's exactly why Jesus does what he does in this moment. He's being tortured. I mean, like, literally tortured. And, and he's on his last few breaths, and in that moment, he still decides to step in and care for someone who's vulnerable. His own mom. Why do we care for them? You see, we talked about, like, you want to be like, why are we doing this whole series? Where do Well, because we believe that we want to be a church that is the hands and feet of Jesus. Like, we're supposed to be Jesus on this earth. Okay? So if we're supposed to be Jesus and do what Jesus did and say what Jesus said and think the way Jesus thought. Like, we got to know who Jesus was passionate about. So that's why we spent time looking at the fact that Jesus saves and reaches and finds the outcast and the selfish, the broken, the vulnerable today, the powerless that we looked at last week. Like, we got to know who Jesus cared about so we can be people who actually care about that as well. You see, when it comes to the vulnerable, there's a couple of things that ought to come up. Number one is compassion and number two is justice. When we think of compassion, we have to remind ourselves, you're vulnerable too. The, the truth of the matter is, according to Scripture, without Christ, we are helpless and hopeless. Every single one of us. So the more that we love and spend time with people who are vulnerable, the more we begin to understand how much we're the same as they are. Uh, the second one, though, I think is, is really important as well. Compassion and justice. Uh, so this past week, um, I'm at a, a restaurant, we're sitting around a table, and I'm meeting with some guys that uh, I've been discipling for the last few years. 
so much fun. Young group of guys. And uh, two of them are like brand new Christians. In fact, one of them uh, has kind of been seeing Jesus and what it means to people grow up go to church like that way. And uh, he and his wife showed up here at CLC on Easter. And on Easter morning, he prayed and received Christ. He's like, man, I'm so in. Like, I am all in. This is what I've been looking for. And uh, he's a part of this group. And uh, he shared his story this past week. And, and uh, we're having some conversation at the end. And he shares this. He starts to tell me a, a story that culminated in Christ. He tells me about the rut. Like, lost the rut. He's a runner. very, very good runner. In fact, the first time she ran a marathon, she qualified for the Boston. Okay? Big deal. So, uh, she loved to run. And not just run, but to race. Like, she just, she just really enjoyed it. So, um, he wound up getting hurt. Uh, that year, he was uh, kind of a training partner with her. He runs all the time, but he couldn't run. He was laid up for almost a year, so he didn't train um, for the Boston the way that he normally would. But when you qualify for Boston, like you want to go run Boston, okay? She's like, "We're gonna go. I'm gonna run it. I'm not gonna try to set a personal best or anything like that. I'm just gonna go and, and, and say that I did it, okay? Uh, cool, cool opportunity." So they're like, "Yeah, that's awesome." So they go together. She enters the race. He's hanging out near the finish line waiting for her. She comes through the finish line. Uh, normally when you come through the finish line, they like usher you like back because they don't want to you know back people up like come through these shoes. They kind of get you to keep walking. But she's having a problem with, with one of her shoes. And so she comes through the finish line, he sees her, gets some pictures, uh, he takes off, starts walking, uh, back one of the streets, he's gonna go meet her someplace else. She's through, uh, instead of going all the way back where they normally ask you to go, she actually just kind of popped over to the side and sat down on the curb and started taking her shoe off. And she's working on something. Uh, um, about a minute or so goes by, and all of a sudden she hears this massive explosion. It was 2013, and she ran Boston. And that was the year that she her brother. She was so close that she didn't just hear it. She felt it. And uh, instantly people started seeing, running, people who were running, running, running after. And it shook her up. I mean, like, it hit like big time. Do you ever have to go through a traumatic experience like that? It can really mess you up. And, and, and it's really hard. You can't run the way that you used to run. husband's telling me this story, and it gets to the end of the story, and he says, so why did you not allow that? that what she's experiencing and that feeling of this is 
not fair. This is not right. This is not just. It's exactly the same feeling that God has. I also know that God can take even horrible things in our lives and He can use them when we allow Him to make us more like Jesus. He can redeem things that seem awful and are awful, and He can use those things in our lives. But it doesn't make it right, right? It's still wrong, and we feel it inside deep, like this is not the way it's supposed to be. And I, and I told him, I said, what you feel is exactly what you should feel because it's what God feels. It's injustice. She's sitting on the side of her opponent and coming to the hand. And whenever we see a vulnerable person, and especially a vulnerable person being taken advantage of, sometimes by others, sometimes by a system of oppression that is coming down on them that they can't even see or seem to know how to fight against, we ought to care. Like, it ought to bug us. That, that's why we are supposed to be people who actually fight against injustice. We offer compassion because God has offered compassion to us. We offer grace to anyone who has it. And we fight for justice because God fights for justice. We have to care about the bullies because God cares about the bullies. Uh, the very last verse, that time, John, if you mind throwing up all those verses, um, we have John, 1 John 3, 17, 18. John actually writes, how can God's love abide in anybody who has the world's good? In other words, who has strength, who has resources, who has gifting, okay? How can the love of God abide in anybody who has that stuff, sees somebody in need, and refuses to do anything about it? Look, if you want to know what Christians look like, what Christians do, we look and act and do what Jesus did, which is to spend our strength on others. Jesus left heaven. Everything was his up there, right? He needs it all to become a baby. You can't be more vulnerable than a baby. He spent his strength on us, weak and the poor, so that we could be strong, so that we could be weak. That's just the beauty. And so we, in turn, are intended to spend our strength on others. I'd like to... Uh, you guys this video of one particular family within our community who has been spending their strength on loving and serving on offering compassion and justice to some of the vulnerable in our community. Hi, my name is Susan. And my name is Bryce Beckett. And this is our story. God gave me the desire to become a foster parent many years ago when my oldest son was just a baby. We had an older couple come to our church week after week. Um, they fostered newborn babies. And I watched them and uh, watched the babies come and watched the babies go. And I thought, what an important and rewarding thing that they were doing. About three years later, my former husband and I became licensed foster parents. Uh, we lived in the Chicago area at the time, and eventually that led to the adoption of our three of our oldest children. 33 years ago, I had a child born to me with special needs. At the time, I felt incredible sadness and disappointment that this had happened to our family. But now, looking back on it, I realized that God used that experience to prepare me to care for other children who had special needs and came into the foster care system.
When I first met Susan, I had experience to know one of her children, Michael, and Michael was special needs and got to walk through his death. And uh, it really impacted me. And uh, so we moved on and we were asked to become foster parents again. In total, we've taken on 17 children foster and we've adopted eight of them uh, or we're in the process of that. Uh, we've buried five children together. Uh, that's been tough. We take on the uh, responsibility of life and death and what we have found out that it's not just caring for the children, it's also ministering to the parents. We've learned a lot through that process. We've learned that uh, we're not in control. We don't have any, uh, not much say in when they go, but we call them his children and we get the privilege to take care of them. And uh, forever long they're here on this earth. These children need someone to represent them from God's point of view, God's perspective. They have so much to offer our society. They deserve our honor and um, our respect, and we need to protect them. Who will be their voice if not us? But sometimes it's hard. When we take a child in and we bring them home for the first time, there's a lot of responsibilities that we have to go as a husband and wife and a care team. One of the things is ensuring that our nurse care is here, that we have it all arranged, that the schedule's set. We also have to ensure that they have the proper room, the, the vet equipment. One of the things that we have to deal with is nurses in our home at a minimum of 12 hours a day. And that's tough because you, your home is no longer your home. You're being observed, uh, you're being watched. One of the most difficult things that we have found in caring for children with uh, medical fragility are the end of life decisions. They can be excruciating. Um, when we don't know exactly what to do because a lot of times we're just not sure, we ask God, but sometimes the answers aren't clear. Um, we always err on the side of life because we know that God values life. And we also know that when God wants to stop their little beating hearts, he will do that and take them home to him. Um, we have seven children all together that are in heaven now. We've wrestled with decisions. We've kept vigil at bedsides. We've prayed for miracles. And uh, we've wept buckets of tears. But in the end, there's no greater privilege than holding a little baby um, when they go home to be with the Lord. Heaven becomes so real when you have people there that you love. We have found it so rewarding to bring these children into our homes and watch them grow and develop, start to smile and learn things and develop the things that they weren't able to develop when they were just laying in a hospital bed. I'm just struck by the fact that God would entrust Bryce and I to care for these little people that he has created. And along with that trust, it's a sobering responsibility. And often I think about Luke 12, where it says, to whom much is given, much is expected. And often we feel like we fail and we don't give it our best, or we get tired, or we get selfish, 
sometimes we just forget who we're serving. I mean, we look at we look at Braley and Max, and um, you know, we and and two of our nurses now. One of them is adopting another child, but she said it's because we were here. I've worked here for the last six months, and I've seen that this can be done. And she so now she's stepping out and adopting. One of our former nurses adopted one of our kids, um, and it's those those stories where you see God continuing to work in other families. See, I think it's because we're ordinary people and, and God takes ordinary people to do ex extravagant things and, and to care for a medical child, you know, people, it's tough. But it's an opportunity to take care of somebody that no one else is gonna take care of. We found that when we care for the most vulnerable in our society, God has always provided everything that we've needed. It's such a privilege to be able to care for these children. And we have gotten a glimpse into the corners of this world that most people don't get a chance to see. And we've seen God work miracles in these children's lives and in the lives of their families. One thing Bryce always tells me is that we're called to serve. We're called to be a servant to these children. And every day we're trying to do it better than the day before. It's a process. Some of you are probably like, Vulnerable populations. 
I wish I could say to you. And so, what we're going to do right now is send around a sign-up sheet. You're going to sign up. But we don't have that yet. But we will. Something to work with. Because we have to. Now, if you get connected that way, that's fantastic. Because organizationally, we need to have something. It's an opportunity for folks to begin to engage. To begin to try to get their feet wet. If you're like, man, I'm not, I want to do something. I don't want to do something, but I, I don't really know what to do right now. That's going to be a great way for you to engage, okay? Trying to get your feet wet. But here's the, here's the truth. My mom and Bryce aren't going to stop taking care of kids with special needs if we don't champion that particular ministry as a church. Why? Because that's a calling that God has placed on their lives. And my goal, my hope for you, is that if you're not doing it anywhere in any form, that you will step into some of the serving opportunities that we have organizationally, that God will ask you to have a chance to get involved. But my hope is that you simply won't do something because we as a church organizationally do something, but that as you engage and grow in your understanding of who God is and the gifts that he's given you and the strength that he's given you and whatever that looks like, that you will say to yourself, this is why God put me on this. This is how I'm supposed to use the gift that I have to care for the vulnerable. And you'll do something because God has called you to do it, not simply because you as a church are championing that particular thing. We can't champion everything. We just can't. We have to champion some things, though. And you can't do everything either. But you can do something. That's what we're called to do. And look, if you're looking for a church where you can come and, like, get a message and enjoy the worship and then walk out of here, there's a lot of great churches around there in Africa that we feel to have. We are not one of them. And the reason that we are not one of them is because we cannot be. Because if your faith is stale, and I let you sit in that staleness of faith, it is just going to lead towards death. You are never going to experience the life that you are intended to experience. And you know why else? that I need you to not have stale faith is because someday I'm going to have some stale faith. And I need you to model for me what it looks like to have vibrant, real faith that actually gets your hands and your feet dirty in people's lives where it's messy and it's difficult and it costs something. And that's why we can't be a church that just lets us all skate by with stale faith. So together, we will kick each other's tail with grace with gentleness, but we will not shy away from it. Because we need that from us. But he'll commit to saying, this church will be what Jesus wants it to be, and I will do what Jesus calls me to do. And Torrin, I'll help you to do what God has called you to do. And I'll model for you vibrant faith so that when you feel stale, you can look at me and see what I'm doing, and you can be Revive, encourage, renew, and I'll do my best to do the same for you. And together, we will change the city of Grand Rapids. God didn't bring us here to just make a little dent in a little pocket. God brought us here to bring the kingdom of heaven to this earth, and that's what we will be about. Some of you are just like, yeah. And you're like, you meant to 
Hey. <laughs> Sorry that you happen to be here today, but not that. <laughs> um, hey, I want to pray for us. And while I'm praying, I'm actually going to give us a little bit of time to just sit in God's presence. Some of you, today, in this place, God is going to speak to you. And he's going to give you a calling that you did not anticipate, and you will not be able to face. And it will lead you down some of the hardest, and most difficult, and most beautiful paths in every time. And I want to give you this space to speak before God and say, God, what do you have something to do? And we're going to sit in that sacred space just a little bit, and then I will pray. All right, Lord. You're here. You know that you're here because when your body gathers together, Jesus, you as the head, promised to be present among us in the youth and call us away. And so, Jesus, we want to hear from you. God, I pray that you will speak to these folks, not to me. I mean, if you say it, you know, so, <laughs> so, just talk to them. No, Lord, we want to be a people who listen to you. Jesus, there's something in this piece of paper you see. God, right now in this moment, we see our friends and follow our friends. God, we see you. Guys, thank you so much for coming out. I love worshiping with you. You guys like worship like amazing. It's, I sit in the front and I hear you, and it's awesome. So thank you. Uh, we are actually going to have. It is about ten after. We even got out early. Wow. Thank you, Lord. Right. So that's some of you know. We are actually going to gather back in here for our child dedication service in fifteen minutes. That'll give you plenty of time to go out and get some bagels. Uh, and some cream cheese, go collect your kids from the children's ministry, hang out, say hi to some folks, gather back in here, and uh, we're going to have a dedication service. It doesn't take that long, and as many of you as want to, we would love for you to be a part of it. Oh, and if you didn't get pictures yet, go get some pictures, and if you need to steal a mom, come steal a mom. That Karen, Karen right here, Karen, raise your hand. Karen, yes, she's willing to be your mom for the day. Go get a picture with Karen. It's awesome. All right. Thanks, guys. We'll see you next week.